0: Oh, we started? Yeah. So you're visiting this time, so I figured we'd do it in person. What did you find interesting about this episode of The Bigger Narrative? It's the founder of the company called Foxglove, and his name is Adrian McNeil. And he feels it's very important to get the narrative set sooner rather than later. Uh Because he said that it really focused the direction of everybody. And then they actually had developed two products, they thought. And once they got the narrative, they realized that the two products were really the same product. <laughs> so now they have one product, which makes things more, less complicated. Oh, I'm glad you got that from the talk. Yes. Anything else? Well, check out Julia Louie dreyfuss podcast, Wiser Than Me, because her mother comes on at the end of that, and she is amazing. Oh, uh, really? Yeah. She's very good. Okay. I recommend it. Let's see if we can get a cross promotion where Julia Louis-Dreyfus is promoting the bigger narrative. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> I doubt it. This is the bigger narrative. I'm Andy Raskin. Say you're deploying a fleet of autonomous robots, self-driving cars, operatorless lawnmowers, whatever, and something goes wrong with one of them out in the world, you need to collect tons of data from the machine, maybe recreate what happened in a simulation, remotely deploy a fix. In 2021, Adrian McNeil co-founded Foxglove to help robotics developers with all of that. As CEO, Adrian released a free open source simulator for recreating 3D scenes from robot sensor and camera data, which became really popular. Foxglove's revenue comes from selling those engineers a data platform for retrieving and organizing data from the robot so it can be used in simulations, debugging, monitoring, all of which turns out to be hard when you're talking about millions of robots in the field. But around six months ago, he told me he was having trouble conveying the urgency of the offering
1: as adrian recalls a lot of our story was focusing on the data it was saying you have all of this data but it's a disorganized mess and you should clean up that mess and we can provide you with this nice clean data lake and all of your data is in one place and so we we're selling people on cleaning up their data, which is not really an outcome that maybe a VP of engineering or a, a co-founder or CTO or something really cares about cleaning up my data. Why?
0: When you would talk to a low-level engineer who was frustrated with their mess of data, maybe that would resonate. But you're talking often in sales calls to maybe that person and or
1: like you said, some VP of engineering, or in some cases, the CEO of the company. Exactly. A lot of the companies that we're talking to are series B stage companies, they might have 100 employees, but you're not that far removed. Quite often, a co-founder or CTO or the CEO is involved in a purchasing decision. So we saw a lot of interest at the grassroots ground level. Sometimes engineers would get excited about the data management piece, and they would see in their head how it fits together. So we're getting a lot of bottoms up adoption of our tools, but when we were going into those sales calls, we were struggling to explain like the value of the business value that you're getting out of this. So then how do you set
0: it up now? What's the first thing you talk about when you meet a prospect?
1: Yeah. So now the first thing that we focus on is actually the and this is coming from your philosophy of of looking at change in the world. And the change for us is when you think back to the robotics industry of even just five or ten years ago. Very few companies were operating autonomous robots in production. There's a lot of traditional robots. So I like to think of these as like robots in cages. If you picture a auto manufacturing facility or something like that, there's a lot of really big robots, but they're in cages. And if you want to open the cage door, production line comes to a standstill. But there was a new generation of robotics companies coming up, which are autonomous robots or collaborative robots. And this can span a super wide range of areas from self driving cars self-driving tractors, self-driving lawnmowers, to indoor autonomy, like within warehouses, autonomous mobile robots that are moving packages around within a warehouse, or they're driving around Walmart, checking stock levels, checking prices, checking that things are correctly in the right place, through to drones. You've got all of these robots now that are using sensing and perception to impact their decision-making. And it's really only in the past like five to 10 years that we've seen this even like m- moving into production. And so um, how do you sum that up? Are, yeah. Oh, yeah we, have, yeah, we had uh, Goodbye Prototypes, Hello Production. Yeah,
0: and so this Goodbye Prototypes, Hello Production, well, first of all, I remember there were a bunch of shifts we thought about, how did we come to that one? I think it was really talking to customers. Who was the person on your team who did the customer interviews?
1: from Bannister.
0: Yeah, so Brom did the customer interviews and he asked them, hey, what has shifted in your world such that what we're delivering here is life and death urgent for you? And without fail, they all talked about this shift that you're talking about that, hey, it used to be you could be a successful robotics company and you're building a prototype proof of concept. But now every one of these companies, either they're already or they have this goal of this mass deployment of hundreds, thousands, millions of robots and they're needing to observe what they're doing in the world. What have you found happens when you start with this in a sales call versus what you used to do and just talk about, hey, we're gonna clean up your data?
1: That's just something that universally we get a lot of nods from, right? The previous framing was like, your data's a mess you should clean it up, which is a little bit kind of telling people off. Yeah, And to be fair, I think we did get a few nods and laughs from the engineers, maybe, when we came in with an opener of your data is a mess, you should clean it up. But it's not tying things to a movement that they want to be part of, right? It's just, I'm not going to join the my data is a mess movement. (laughs) Right? Um, Right. Yeah, I just want to clarify here something, because
0: I I, I totally get what you're saying, like, this prototypes to production is is something that they'll agree with and give the nods. But there's many things we could say that they'll agree with what is it about this one that that they agree with it but they also don't feel you're wasting their time
1: and it creates a good conversation it should be something that is aspirationally true something that people are going to very much be drawn to the end state. And I think with the hell of production, we talk about now you're scaling the number of units, you need repeatable success. You need to drive reliability at scale. You need profitable unit economics. You're tying it to a higher cause. It's not just, like, oh, cool. And then your data will be clean. That's not a business goal. Have nice tidy data. And I think
0: also from what you told me, and tell me if I'm getting this wrong, what was working about this shift is it somehow hit a nerve that they were already thinking about. Maybe they hadn't put it in these words, but they were worried about this. Like It created a lot of good discovery conversation. Why did this create good discovery conversation?
1: I think it opens up a much broader conversation. I said at the start, one of the bigger challenges we were facing was relating to a VP or a CTO or something. Even if they're not on the call, even if we're talking to some engineers, we're still framing this in terms of something that they want to achieve, which is getting their robots to production faster and scaling them in production faster. And the next thing that we jumped into is saying, well, what does it take to be successful in production? In fact, I can sit down with any robotics founder and say, How far along are you on this production journey? And they're all going to be at different stages, right? Sometimes it's a seed or a series A company and they've got a couple of robots doing very impressive things, but they haven't yet scaled it out. Or sometimes I sit down with a founder who's got thousands of robots in the field. But even then thousands of robots is nothing is dropping the bucket compared to the potential for a lot of these companies.
0: So this narrative, does it play a role in your leadership outside of sales and marketing?
1: Yeah, definitely. So the unexpected thing I think that that came out of this whole conversation was that it actually completely changed our product strategy. So we started out with this mental model that we had two products around visualization and around data management. And through having this conversation about why are we building what we're building at Foxglove, we realized that the thing that we're solving for people is it's not just the visualization, it's not just the data management in the cloud, there's this whole life cycle of how you're recording data on your robots, how you're getting data off the robots, how you're storing and organizing in the cloud, and then how you're going and doing visualization or analysis. Those four parts, we spent a lot of time thinking about what do we call this? And we landed on Foxglove as an observability platform for robotics. Uh, which helps robotics engineers understand what their robot is doing, what their robot is seeing, what their robot is thinking after much heated debate. A lot of heated debate. (laughs) Yeah, Yeah. (laughs) nothing is ever a perfect analogy when you're building a new product category, right? Observability is a word that's very well known in the software infrastructure space, but not very well known at all in robotics. But people usually have a passing familiarity with it. And the analogy here is that web servers have these observability solutions
0: to know if they're functioning properly, if there are
1: errors. Right, stuff like exactly. That. I mean, the concept of observability predates infrastructure. It comes from control theory, and it just means how well I can understand the internal state of a system. And so it comes from this theoretical background, but it has been heavily co-opted by server infrastructure. And so we felt that that was a pretty close analogy. Like I said, the robotics is different. You are dealing with super multimodal data, and you're dealing with super limited bandwidth. So it's different, but it's a close analogy to this problem where we need to monitor our servers in production. We need to monitor our robots in production. Yep.
0: You said it the narrative influenced your product strategy. I think you decided in the end to merge into one product.
1: Is that right? Exactly. I remember you and I sat down and we had this probably two hour conversation where I kept trying to explain to you what our products were and what they did. <laughs> and we've got the visualization thing and you're like, okay, well, do people buy that? I was like, no, it's open source. Okay, we've got this data thing okay well, do people buy the data thing by itself i'm like no they buy it because they want the visualization thing too and and after i think about an hour and a half of back and forth you you said to me why are these two different products and i said historical reasons that's when they got created separately and came about. but we really had this i think kind of light bulb moment that it influenced the narrative and the narrative influenced the product strategy of these are not two separate products they have different pieces they can be used kind of independently But they're two sides of the same coin, and most of the people that were buying from us cared about the combination of the two products, um, even if technically they can be used for other purposes as well. So we've really completely leaned in on that now. We've gone through our website, we've gone through our sales deck, but also as it's related to features that we're building, we've thought about this observability concept first now. So as we're building features, we sat down and mapped out, okay, we're building an observability platform. What would you expect an observability platform to do? And so there was this interesting feedback loop where we started out with these bits of different products. We realized that observability was the unifying factor. And then we said, okay, well, if we are building an ability platform, what should it do? And we realized we have all of these gaps. And so now our product strategy has, in the past six months, really been filling in all of those gaps and building something that truly does live up to the the description of a observability platform.
0: Can you give an example of something that the narrative around observability and the shift to production led you to realize that, oh, there was a hole in the product that we want to fill?
1: Yeah, a big one is getting data off robots. So we had an open source logging library that helped you record data on your robot. And we had an infrastructure platform that would help you organize data in the cloud once you got it off the robot. And we had a visualization tool that would help you step through and replay and kind of visualize this robotics data. But we're completely missing this piece of how do we get the data off the robot? And that has turned out to be a a super valuable one. Honestly, it surprised me how much value people put on that particular piece on being able to selectively fetch interesting snippets of data off the robot, given these constraints of super dense data and super limited bandwidth. Right, because it's not just the
0: mechanics of getting any data. You've got this sea of data that's on all these different robots in different places, and you might want to just get some very select slice of it.
1: Right, exactly. You can take some of the lightweight stuff, like the robot's position. If it's an outdoor robot, sure, you can take the GPS data and you can maybe afford to stream that off the robot 24-7 because it's not a huge quantity of data. But things like your camera feeds, that's you just don't have the bandwidth to be uploading that. So this, you have this challenge of back at your operations center, or one of your developers has a bug file that said, hey, yesterday at 2 p.m. something went wrong. Can you take a look at it? They need to be able to go and Request their data off the robot.
0: One thing I hear people sometimes wondering about is how you use the narrative to differentiate. We're talking about this big shift in the world that's on the face of it not a differentiator. But then we created this slide that was basically like, hey, the existing tools weren't built for this. Right. Right. Could you talk about h- how you use the narrative to position the other tools as not built for this?
1: Yeah, this was a really interesting one. And I think one of my biggest challenges I think I put to you coming into to when we first started talking, because it's a completely new product category. And I think you've written many words about, I'm paraphrasing, but you don't believe in creating new product categories. or so. <laughs> I, I wouldn't say that. What I'd say is there's
0: a focus often on what's the category name going to be. Right. And if right. we can just get this name Like observability, okay, we're done and let's see if that works. And my feeling is, yeah, we want to get the good name, but it's really the narrative behind it that fills that product category name with meaning. So I I just like to focus
1: on that. But go ahead. ahead. Sorry to interrupt you. No, uh, you, you, you say it better yourself. But this was the challenge we were facing, right, is there are no analogous tools, we're not saying we've built a better X. And so we're really struggling with how to even frame what it is that we're doing for people. And I think this shift from prototype to production really helped because you can very easily look back and say the existing software out there for building robots was built for this prototype phase of robotics development, right? There's a lot of existing open source and otherwise robotics tools out there that have come up through various labs or that have been created over the years, but they've been created For this prototype phase of robotics development, where people have just been working mostly locally on one computer, they haven't been dealing with a fleet of hundreds or thousands of robots at scale. So because we just told you about how robots have shifted from prototype to production, now I can say the existing tools weren't built for this because they were built for the prototype phase of development. And you're shifting for production now, you're in production now.
0: Well, there are some tools that were a little closer to you that were kind of new. Like I think you called them, op- what did you call them? Ops?
1: Fleet operations.
0: Fleet operations.
1: Early, yeah. So when we say that the existing tools are built for this, there's actually three categories that we point out. Number one is the robotics visualization tools that were created for for local development, where I'm just working with run Robot and I've got kind of the files sitting on my computer. The second category is server observability. If I'm running a website, I've got like a Datadog running or a Grafana or a Splunk or a Sumo Logic or neural like all of these kind of tools are built for monitoring server infrastructure so they're great at collecting text logs but they don't help you with capturing video data they don't help you with capturing a 3d scene or joint states or you know position or pose of your robot so they can't help with that they're, they're not
0: built, built, for built for getting data off data. a million machines yeah, and all, the all these rest. kind of things yep. right
1: exactly And then the third category is there are a few software companies doing robotics fleet operations. This arguably is quite similar to observability, but these companies help people get, I would say, higher level insights across a fleet of robots. How many tasks are getting completed or things like that. But what we're building is very much for developers. We're looking at for this one particular failure, how do I go through and step frame by frame through exactly the full image that was coming through our camera and all of the objects that we detected and every single part of that decision making process for a single specific incident. Yeah,
0: it's interesting because as you said, those fleet operations platforms are probably the closest to you and a different way to go would have been say, hey, here's why we're better than the fleet operations system for you without that whole narrative context in the beginning. I think what you did with the narrative is you said, hey, we're a different animal from this thing that you might think is actually the same. (laughs) And I think what you're telling me is once we do that, we don't get that kind of question. Well, how are you different from this folks? Right.
1: Yeah. I think it's always been clear in our heads that we weren't competing with these fleet operations tooling, but we did occasionally get questions from people, especially when you first pitch the product and say, oh, this sounds a lot like XYZ and we're lacking the language to describe that. But now we have this framing, we can say we're an observability tool and our focus is on developers, right? Our focus is on helping you understand exactly the super nuance level yep. of what happened in a particular incident.
0: When we were initially talking about what's the shift in the world, one of the ideas that came from the team was hey, used to be you build your own tools. Right. And now right. you outsource to the best tools. <laughs> yeah.
1: This was a strong contender, which Andy, I don't want to say vetoed, but Strongly advocated against. You know, this is true, right? Every single one of our sales, um, we're going into a company either that's relatively new and just doesn't have anything in place, or we're going into an established company where they have some tooling, but it's all been built in house. A couple of people have chipped in over the years, and they've got their tooling to a state that it's not terrible. So the the proposed shift, I guess, was that it used to. Have to build everything yourself now you right. can use things off the shelf
0: why did we reject that one? First of all it's a little self-serving <laughs> it's very so self- you know hey you should buy stuff from software vendors and not build it yourself <laughs> but let's say they say yeah we want to buy the best of breed software now well we then still have to go into a whole thing about what is our software about prototypes to production just short, short circuits all that I'm right thinking. it's it's much
1: better To focus on why your product is going to solve these business outcomes for them rather than focusing on, well, you won't have to build it. Because especially if you're pitching to engineers, by the way, like you tell engineers, like you won't have to build it. And they're like, but I like building it. (laughs)
0: Right. Right. Um, Anything that was harder than you expected in getting to this narrative that your team was aligned on and excited about?
1: I think coming to the observability framing, it sounds so obvious in hindsight. And you've said this before with other companies, you come up with the framing and the story and the narrative, and then you use it for three months or six months. And you look back and you're like, how was it ever not that? You, you could lose memory of how you used to even think about the world, and it just feels so natural in hindsight. But at the time, it, it can be really, you're in the fog of war, right? It's like you, you're in there and you're like, ah, does that sound really like the right thing? And like we said, we had plenty of other ideas thrown out that we haven't even talked about, but... There was some really heated debate on it. And I think at one point, maybe I was in favor of observability. And I I think like a good portion of the team were against it.
0: I I do remember one person, I won't say who was said, yeah, I'm an observability hater.
1: (laughs) 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 They declared themselves in that camp in one of the earlier
0: sessions.
1: Yeah, Yeah. but it's, uh, it's kind of like anything. It's like any phrase or name or change of story. The example I always like to go to is Kubernetes. It's like the most absurd name I've ever heard for like a piece of software, right? It's like super long. I don't think anyone really knows how to fully spell it. And so I think with us, it was like, it was quite contentious at first because we'd never used this observability term and people felt new and it felt different, but especially as you get deeper into these discussions, but then you give it, you sleep on it, you give it a few nights, come back, talk some more kind of bounce things it's amazing you just keep out these things and see after a few days or after a week of chewing on it you see which ones keep coming back in your mind and i think that was how we got past that and how People came to love it, and now it's now it's like very much a part of the company.
0: Yeah. At the end, I always ask what worked and what didn't in the engagement, and even that the hater, that person called out very clearly. Yeah, this observability thing just tied everything together for us. Yeah, uh, yeah. And we had a good laugh over the hater stuff.
1: Right. 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 Now they're an observability convert. Yes.
0: Any advice you'd give to a CEO who is thinking about doing
1: this kind of work? Definitely. It's something that you need to carve out time for and focus on. And I think part of the benefit that, that that I got and we got from working with you, besides your knowledge and experience, was just a forcing function to commit like quite a few hours to talking about this with a handful of people from across the company. And that's something that we had not dedicated enough time or, or thought to early on. So I think... Coming in again, honestly, I think if I was back to square one and starting a company, it would be kind of the first before you even go out and raise your first dollar or before you even build your first product. Like it's never too early. I'd be trying to come up with the narrative before you even have incorporated <laughs> the company because it's so it's such an important part. I mean, the narrative we had in the early days was there used to be at cruise and we built a lot of this stuff at cruise and we're going to commercialize that as an idea. That was the extent of the narrative when we used it with investors and things. But it's not a it's not a narrative that lasts. You can't get one year, two years into the company and still be leaning on, Hey, I used to build this for a living and now I started a company. It's like a very like kind of boring narrative. So <laughs> I would Well, it's a narrative in that it's about you. Yeah. I it. mean, to be fair, when you're getting your first sort of seed investment and you're hiring your first one or two employees like it is a lot about you and your idea because it works it it worked for you right (laughs) (laughs) but i would think a lot harder as early as possible about coming up with a story that is bigger than just yourself once you grow up and become a real company and you want to start going out and selling and other people are going out and selling it's not much if they're just bringing the gospel of hey you should buy us because we have great founders
0: You know, when I played this convo with Adrienne McNeil for my mom, her first question was, is Goodbye Prototype's Hello Production the narrative, or is Observability the narrative? I wish I had recorded that because it's a great question that highlights a dynamic I sometimes encounter where it feels natural to break the narrative into two pieces. So. Adrian could have cut to the chase with something like, uh, I don't know, goodbye, viability, hello, observability, but the higher level prototypes to production shift just seems to elicit so much good conversation with prospects that he didn't do that. This happens sometimes in the movies, by the way, too. Uh, first, Darth Vader shows up, and only later does he kill the aunt and uncle. The Bigger Narrative is produced and edited by me, Andy Raskin, with music by Stephen Emerson and podcast cover art by Angela Mae Chen. Carla Borelli inspired the show by telling me I should do it over coffee. Thanks to Adrian McNeil, Roman Stillman, Brian Carlin, Baram Bani Sauter, Esther Wion, and everyone at Foxglove. Special thanks also to Judy Raskin, Richard Raskin, Emily Raskin, Eli Raskin, Anna Firmanov, Craig Rosenberg, Bill Kasky, and Carol Wasserman. And remember, the company story is the company strategy.